Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres, narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Zeroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening from the past several weeks as we have brought the show back after quite a long hiatus. Um, If you have yet to subscribe, please do. You can find me on Apple, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and its home base at Podbean. Um, If you want, you can just uh, check out the show in general. Just go to excelsiorjourneys.podbean.com. Any rating, any review, any share, any comment, everything is so appreciated. It's always good to know that uh, that I'm not talking into a vacuum here. Um, And from what I've heard so far of the feedback that I've gotten, I'm not, and I'm very grateful to that. Um, there is a book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain that's out there right now. And it's basically just saying that the first mountain you climb is your own personal mountain. You are achieving the goals that you have set out for your life. And then there is a second mountain that you climb beyond that. And what you're doing there is you are helping others get to where you are. And I can't think of a better example of that kind of person than the guest that I have for this week. Uh, Joel Eisenberg is someone that uh, that I happened to encounter on Facebook. One of those things where our interests found our way to each other, and we got to we got to talking. I've commented on his stuff. He's commented on my stuff. It turns out that we have a lot in common, and he became someone very quickly that I felt all right. I got to hold on to this person, and it's been a great several years actually knowing him. Uh, This is someone, uh, Joel is someone who is an author, he is a screenwriter, he is a producer, and he is also a columnist of some really fascinating and very very helpful articles um, about what to do with screenwriting, what to do with filmmaking, what works, what doesn't, and is always open to giving advice to to anyone who asks, really. especially if you ask nicely, which is always, I mean, come on, you know, be respectful guys. Um, And also he's also become, uh, he's also going on to become a teacher uh, for several years. And he's also gone to, uh, gone to many different events over the years, speaking about filmmaking, speaking about getting your, uh, getting your foot in the door in that very competitive business and just doing what he can to help other people along the way. And it's something that I feel that uh, in this day and age, we definitely need to champion those people more. And that's why I have Joel here. So without further ado, may I introduce Joel Eisenberg. Joel, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. That was a hell of an intro. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, Now, before we jump back to the very beginning to kind of tell your story, is there something that, uh, that you're working on right now? I've seen a lot of different columns by you lately, and they've all been really, really helpful and very informative as well. 
I'm always working on something because in this business, you have to keep working. You have to generate as much content as humanly possible as a writer, producer. I'm responsible for that. So yes, I'm working on several things. I have a uh, big science fiction project with Roddenberry Entertainment. That's a scoop for you. We haven't announced it yet. Oh, wow. And, wow. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, come yeah. on, people. Come on. <laughs> Let's share this one. Come on there. <laughs> there you go. No, that, that, that's a scoop for you, man. It'll be announced wow. soon. It's a uh, project called Oxygen based on an unpublished comic book series. And I can't get too into it. But yeah, that's with Roddenberry Entertainment. So we've been developing that. And hopefully that will be their next uh, big science fiction franchise after Star Trek. We hope. And of course. Uh, yeah. And then uh, another project we're working on. And you should see some press on this in the next couple of weeks. Everything being well. Back in the 1970s, there was a particular comic book character that Marvel did not own, but they licensed called the Human Fly, who mm. was based on a daredevil back in Canada in the 1970s, who wore a head-to-toe costume and said he was the uh, real evil Knievel, basically. Mm. And uh, this is a guy who was, uh, for all intents, a scam artist and so on, but Marvel made him a superhero. And star, uh, rather, Spider-Man was... Uh, in one of the books and so forth. Anyway, uh, we are developing that with a particular company and we may have this very important attachment this week. So if that happens, I will shoot you a private message and you could share that if you want. And uh, other than that, you know, just the usual uh, causing trouble on social media and uh, <laughs> writing columns and speaking and uh, doing all these other uh, things as a writer, just creating content on an ongoing basis. And I have a company that does the same. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. I am, I am so, I am so excited about this. So this is, I knew this was going to be a real, a, a great interview anyway, but man, like I am already, you know, like, sir, you've exceeded expectations here. So uh, let's go, let's go to, back to the beginning. And then, you know, like if this is going to be something where a lot of people are going to hear this, I hope, uh, then let's give them a lot to talk about. Let's talk about what happened at the very beginning. What was your lightning bolt moment that made you look at films, at writing in general, and just say, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. Okay, well, that's a great question. Uh, I was about, I think, 10 years old, and somebody invited me over to their house to watch Creature Features nice. in Colorado. And I had never seen a horror film before, and the film was How to Make a Monster. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah. And the thing is, I totally fell in love. I was just, you know, flabbergasted by this new thing called horror films, which I had never heard of. I was 10, like I said. And from there, I became an absolute junkie. Uh, I subscribed to Famous Monsters Magazine. Oh, nice. For, bought... Forey Ackermans, right? Forey was a friend of mine. No kidding. Or he became a good friend of mine later before the, you know, in the last 10 years of his life. Wow. He, uh, and we can talk about Forey all day long. Oh, yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, Forey basically raised me. He was like my Uncle Forey. But the, uh, the thing is, I was a famous monsters addict. I bought every movie poster and every Don Post mask, and I spent time in Captain Company and bought everything I could with my allowance. That uh, led to me buying Marvel monster magazines, you know, the comics. They had Tales of the Zombie and Dracula Lives and so on. Oh, yeah. I bought the, comic, the comics themselves, Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, the whole deal. And, uh, you know, I just couldn't get enough. And the long story short is I started writing. And my first mm -hmm. story was something along the lines of the uh, crew of the Starship Enterprise uh, teams up with Steve Austin, the $6 million man, to battle the Planet of the Apes. Nice. And I have nothing better to do with my time, put it together. Years later, some of that actually became a comic book that I had nothing to do with. But uh, yeah, Star Trek and Planet of the Apes had some crossover issues over the last five years, which is kind of cool. And this year, and this this time, this uh, era that we're in right now, where all these different IPs are getting swallowed up and spit out there on the screen. Although you know, like right now, it's more small screen. Um, you know, something like that, I can definitely see happening at, at some point. I could see studios definitely just saying like, oh, let's, let's have fun with this and this and this. Put them in a blender and see what happens. So Trevor, over at Roddenberry, if you're listening, listen to the man. 
Planet <laughs> of the Apes Star Trek crossover. I should do it with you. There you go. Listen to George. He knows what he's talking about. That's for <laughs> Trevor Roth over at Roddenberry, who runs a company. And yeah, man, I'm using your last name, Trev. So if you see this or hear this, there you go. I am um, so using I am so using that in all of my all my social media now. <laughs> you know, like he knows what he's talking about, Joel Eisenberg. I'm using that. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Yes. But uh, my 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 other real moment was I was about to be left back from junior high. And I've written about this. I, uh, the teacher said that I had very poor reading comprehension skills. Little did they know, I was already reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and, you know, I tried reading Dune back then. I was a big science fiction fan too. And, wow, you're going for the big stuff there. Yeah, no, I was a kid and I was, and I was reading every comic book in existence. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, come on, reading comprehension. I don't want to read the books that you're giving me to read. So they were going to leave me back. And my father had a meeting with the principal. And he said, look, do me a favor. If you allow him to read what he wants to read, he'll do a book report on it. If mm -hmm. he fails, he doesn't do a good job. He's left back, period. If he passes, you move him on to the next grade. Wow. Fair deal. You know, we're all from Brooklyn, so these were, you know, kind of Brooklyn deals to get what we wanted. <laughs> so I did a book report on The Haunting of Hill House by Mary, by uh, um, uh, Shirley Jackson. Nice, nice. And I got an A+. Plus, and I advanced. And it furthered my love for the genre because I felt that horror actually helped me in my life in terms of inspiration. So those are two of my aha moments. How to Make a Monster and Almost Failing Junior High and my father basically saved me. I can I can definitely relate to that because my first year in Richmond, Virginia was my seventh grade year. And the year before that, you know, like my grades were really great and everything. And I was really happy with where I was going. And then all of a sudden, my first year in Richmond, everything just tanked. Self-confidence, grades, everything. Wound up passing seventh grade by one point. One point. If I had, I failed two classes, which meant I had to go to summer school for both of those. But if I failed three, then start over. So it was still just like, I can't believe I, I was that close. And thankfully, I never got that close again. But yeah, I definitely, uh, definitely relate to um, almost getting held back. You know, it's, it's really, to, it's really just mind blowing. People need to understand people like us, creative yeah. people, you know, people who, uh, you know, geek culture and people who grew up with the stuff and so forth. We're not the same. No, you know, no and buttons are pushed differently. Yeah. And that's fantastic. The way that they actually took that, um, took that deal to go ahead and do something to show what you're not only what you're passionate about, but how that passion can relate to something can make its way into something positive. And I think that's something that too many people need to uh, need to realize this day and age, especially now. Um, so so uh so you got so you got into reading you got into writing obviously you're you had that really great uh springboard with that report so what happened next when did you start you know like um really getting into creating your own original content okay so i started reading as i mentioned famous monsters and i saw that other people were doing it why couldn't i mm -hmm. i as i you know got older and went through high school and started college and all of this, I came to the realization that it wasn't uh, what I was going to learn, but who I met along the way that was going to make the difference. Mm -hmm. So I was dating somebody in college and I didn't know what to major in. I wasn't going to major in film for that reason. So uh, she was a special ed teacher and I majored in special ed. Oh, it wow. was just that. I, it was a copycat type of thing. I went to visit one of her classes. I said, I could do that. So my <laughs> college education went to what for all intents and purposes became a fallback gig. Yeah. So I was a special education teacher on and off for 10 years while I was pursuing my passion. Mm -hmm. And I moved out from uh, Brooklyn to LA in 1989. I loved LA so much. I moved back to New York in 1992. <laughs> I hated LA. I hated everything <laughs> about it. I couldn't stand it. I hated the company town. I hated that really? people sleeping till 11 o'clock and sipping margaritas like you know when i'm used to people working right but that was you know it was just a culture shock 
Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I, I found it kind of, you know, a lot of BS. I found it very difficult that every other person I met was writing a screenplay or having a picture, you know, reviewed by Spielberg as they were, you know, talking to me about how much gas I wanted. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it was just kind of tough. So I moved back to New York. But the thing is, I took a, uh, an Amtrak back to New York. Mm -hmm. So it took a few days to get there. And I was reading Anne Rice's The Witching Hour along the way. And as soon as uh, the train left, you know, let me off in New York and my parents were there and I get off the train, I realized I gave up on my dreams. And in two years, I was going to wind up back in California and I was going to stick to it and do whatever it mm -hmm. took to make it. Wow. which is exactly what happened. I went back to teaching special ed in New York for a couple of years and uh, made it back out to LA where I've been ever since. Awesome. Wow, that's so, that's so cool. So while you, were, um, while you were on that train, did you start thinking about, you know, like wanting to create something during that ride or was it just kind of, just kind of reflecting on what you're giving up? I was reflecting more than anything, you know, it's for whatever reason, the works of Anne Rice have always inspired me and Anne became a sort of a friend years later. Um, the thing is, I figured, let me read a work that I know I'll enjoy. Right. It's about the Mayfair witches uh, that she created. But as I'm reading this work that I know I'd enjoy, I also want to consider that somebody took the time to sit down create this mythology and write this. Yeah. You know, we take it all for granted, but you know, when you look at a book, you go to the store, you buy a book, it's like, okay, hey, great. I got a book. Fantastic. 70, you know, however much I paid for it. I was going to say 75 cents, but that was back in the seventies. <laughs> the, uh, the thing is that somebody took the time to write it and I have a ton of books in my collection and I never really just thought of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a fantastic book. Number one, New York times bestseller. There are going to be sequels, and there were. Why can't I do this? So by the time I got back, I was freshly inspired because I took a moment to pause and say, somebody took the time to actually put this together. Right. Wow, that's, so that. yeah. So um, just real quick, Anne Rice, if you're listening, hi. Just got to do that. Uh, <laughs> and, and I haven't gotten an email from you in a bit. You got to get me back here. Uh-oh. Anyway. All right. <laughs> so what, um, so how did it feel actually being able to kind of go in? Uh, like you said, it is something that people, that so many people take for granted when it comes to creating basically your own mythology, you know, your own backstory, your own legends. So when you're doing that, what was that feeling when you were actually, when you starting to get some momentum going and you sort of feel like, wow, I think I may have something. I can't sleep and the wife wants to kick me out of the bedroom. <laughs> uh, honest truth. Yeah. Uh, bas basically, you know, what happens is, you know, she'll wake up the next morning and say, why are you tossing and turning all night? Mm. And I'm like, you know exactly why I've been tossing and turning all night. Yeah. I'll get out of bed at two in the morning, three in the morning, which is a habit now. Right. And I'll just write everything down, whatever, you know, in those few moments where I actually slept and maybe I dreamt something, mm -hmm. I'll write it down. Um, but usually when I'm inspired, I'm sort of knocked on my ass right. and I have to write it. I just have to, everything has to pause. Everything has to stop. Look, I have undiagnosed ADD. I can mm -hmm. go a mile a minute. I've worked and I'm not, I wasn't kidding. When I said before, I worked a hundred day jobs to get to where I needed to be. Right. I, you know, I left teaching on and off. I was a launderer at a mental hospital. I sold, you know, items that, stores. I was a stock boy. I worked at a place called the Middletown Dump in Middletown, New York. I mean, mm -hmm. I worked like every other day job in existence. And after a while, in 2005, I said, you know what? I got to write a book on this and I got to stop the bullshit. I actually have to move forward. Yeah. And I had an idea to write a book called How to Survive a Day Job where I would interview celebrities about how they did it. Oh, nice. One, yeah. There was only one problem. I didn't know anybody. Right. So I went <laughs> online and I just started emailing people blindly. And really? one after another, you know, they just said, okay, yeah, we'll interview, we'll interview, we'll interview. My uh, very first yes is I cornered Clive Barker in a- No uh, kidding. Store. Yeah, he was at a book signing and I'm like, I love Clive Barker. It's like, I got to corner Clive. He yeah. Goes, I'll do it. But with one proviso, I said, what's that? He goes, that you know, I've never worked a day job because I refuse to become a wage slave. Wow. And I'm like, that's awesome. Great perspective. Let's get mm -hmm. it going. 
Yeah. So I interviewed, interviewed Clive and then, you know, the late Stephen Cannell, who produced everything on television from, you know, the 18, the wise guy to, yep. you know, to, just a ton. I cornered him at a bookstore too. He goes, sure, here's my number. Call me tomorrow. And then people wow. like Larry Hagman from Dallas and, and mm -hmm. Brad Meltzer, who's like a number one New York Times bestselling novelist who I knew in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Of, yeah. Brad's, Brad is, yeah, just an amazing person in general. Just, you know. I, I saw, do you know Brad? I don't, I don't know him. I feel like I do because I listened to his, um, his interview with Kevin Smith on Smodcast, uh, the okay. episode, the escape artist, I think like a, a dozen times or so I was so fascinated and I wanted to like, I was telling everyone about it during the time that I was working at Barnes and Noble and whenever they would bring one of his books up, I would just talk about like, okay, you need to hear this interview. You need to hear it. It's, you know, like right over here. It's called The Escape Artist. I'm writing it down on your receipt, by the way. And they were, they were really taken by that. So that's always something that I always made sure to do during that short period of time that I was working at Barnes & Noble. Here's my claim to fame regarding Brad. We saw Return of the Jedi together with my brother and some friends back in 1983 in Brooklyn. That's awesome. So that's we, awesome. Go back, we go back a long way. Brad Meltzer yeah. was one of my brother Neil's best friends. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So when I did that book, How to Survive a Day Job, he was one of the first people I called because I knew he'd say yes. It's fabulous. So yeah. Families go back a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the career just, just kind of, you know, went along these lines. Like I said, I worked every other job in existence. And by the time I finished the book, I had 75 mentors in a box, you know, rather between two covers. Right. And uh, I started doing the speaking thing and selling at Comic-Con and going everywhere and everywhere it went, that book sold out. It was self-published. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going to do a sequel, but I figured, you know what? It's interesting. These people are taking my calls now. These mm -hmm. people, most of them wouldn't have taken my calls before. So I'm going to, I just started staying in touch with everybody. Yeah. And they started really informing me of my own career. Prior mm -hmm. to that book, I had done two films and I had also sold a TV episode, but I was oh, never wow. able to sustain. So I constantly had to go back to the day job, mm -hmm. which was, a, you know, just, just, just horrific for me. Right. You don't go from one job to the next, to the next, to the next being normal. Right. Okay. I, I, I've never considered myself normal. I mean, I am like, again, ADD boy. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'll wor I worked a job for a couple of weeks so I could pay a couple of bills and then I quit. Mm. Because I never wanted to do that. I right. always wanted to write for a living and create my own space. So... After about 2000, after about 2005, after the book came out, mm -hmm. I've been on my own ever since. So it's been about 15 years where I've been self-employed as a writer producer. It's great. I wake up whenever I want, which is usually again two in the morning. Right. Um, but I'll take it. I'll fall asleep during the day. And hey, it's, it's it's your own it's your own it's employment. Own so you get to set your own, own hours. Yeah. But like I tell people, if you know. There, there are a lot of assumptions when you are able to sustain as a writer or in the movie business or in the TV business. Mm -hmm. And one of those assumptions is, oh, you know, you guys have a ton of money. And it's yep. like, yeah, okay, we have, yep. we have a nice house in Los Angeles. That's all great and well. But the bottom line is this nice house is foreclosed upon if I don't consider generating and selling new material. Right. You constantly have to create. You constantly have to sell. You constantly have to take meetings. I still get that old, when are you going to get a real job? Mm. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> why? I right. mean, this is what I do. I've worked my ass off to become a Writers Guild member, to you know, have a company, to sell material, and so on. It doesn't come from you know, not working. So my hours may be my own, but my hours are also the equivalent of up to 20 hours a day sometimes. Right. And I work seven days a week, seven days a week. Before my wife is up on a Sunday, I've already written a couple of articles for media. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the adage about uh, an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is someone who will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to, right. You know, it's like, when you when you have stuff, you want to keep your stuff, mm -hmm. and um, you know it. You just have to keep getting out there. Yeah. The biggest reason why people quit the business when I say the business, either TV, movies, or or writing, they quit an artistic endeavor, right. is because it doesn't happen quickly enough. 
Mm. And it took me a lot of years. My big goal was to become a Writers Guild member. The reason I wanted to become a Writers Guild member is it's free healthcare. Right. You get a pension. Mm -hmm. So here I am sitting on my ass for most of the day and I'm getting a pension. But that came from insane, insane, insane effort and yeah. worrying about every bill. And I, I, we had people come to the door, you know, before I stopped the day job thing. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they were like, we're going to disconnect your electricity. Oh, wow. We had that. We had our uh, gas disconnected. Mm -hmm. We've had uh, our house, you know, back then, you know, in some trouble in the sense that, you know, I was falling behind on bills. Mm -hmm. So I went through anybody that's made it. I can't say anybody that's made it has gone through it. But but most people that I speak to have mm -hmm. their horror stories about how they've gotten to where they needed to be. To yeah. me, this is all not a, not a want. This is a need. This is something that is necessary like breathing so oh, yeah yeah it's kind of like they they say that uh that so much uh so much of of the success in this business in this industry is all about like you know relying on luck but at the same time luck is when opportunity meets preparation and you were basically you had gotten yourself into a position where you were able to have these kinds of contacts and God bless you for using those contacts. There are too many people that are out there that just say um, that they want to, you know, do it on their own. They want to, you know, um, get them, you know, get themselves to where they need to be by themselves. But that never, you know, if you have a connection, use it. You know, like there's, there are people out there that are, that we, that we take for granted that, you know, so many great successes. And so kudos to you for doing that, you know, by, by going through that. So, um, so the, the book comes out, you said in 2005 and yeah. at that point, self-publishing really hadn't kicked in yet. We hadn't seen the Kindle yet. Uh, we hadn't seen uh, Amazon really kind of take self-publishing to the level that it is right now. Um, did you go through, did you go through one of the presses or anything to get your book out? What did you wind up doing for that? Yeah, I went through, uh, it was a, uh, something that was a company under Ingram. Okay. And Ingram is one of the largest book distributors in North America. So mm -hmm. I didn't pay like, you know, an entity to do a cover for me and, and to give me like fancy little bookmarks and stuff like this. Right. Uh, I, I just went through, I don't, I forgot the name of it. Lightning, lightning source. Oh, lightning source. Okay. Okay. So yeah. still, do you know if they're still around? I don't, I don't know yeah, they're, they're doing uh, their, their Ingram spark. You know, that's, right, uh, that's, right. that, that's yeah. they were, okay, so they're still the same. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I went through. And, uh, yeah, you know, I had somebody do a cover for me. Mm -hmm. Actually, you'd appreciate this. You're a comic book guy, right? Yeah, very much. Okay. So I used to live at Neil Adams's house. No kidding. For a year. <laughs> this, this was a wow. whole thing. So he and oh, his man. son, he and his son <laughs> also named Joel. Yeah, uh, Joel did my cover for How to Survive a Day Job. Joel is every bit as talented as Neil. He just didn't get the breaks that Neil got. Right. Yeah. When I when I uh, yeah part part of the whole journey mm -hmm. was at one point I needed a place to stay. Yeah. A friend of mine introduced me to Joel Adams, whose father mm -hmm. was Neil, and I was going to stay at his house for you know a few days while I looked mm -hmm. for a place. I yeah. wound up staying for a year. I paid rent. Wow. And I yeah. stayed for a year. So uh, Neil, when Neil came into town, I just took the smaller bedroom. Okay, so, that's so cool. <laughs> oh man, you meet a lot of people when you when you when you when you do this. You know, somebody, <laughs> well, look, I, I can. It, it's it's there, there's there's a stupid expression in my business. Jack Nicholson told me never to name drop. <laughs> but you, you know, the thing is, I could name drop from today to tomorrow. With, with some of these people that I've encountered that were heroes of mine when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting business. Yeah, it really is. It really uh, is. I'll, so. I'll name one. I'll tell you who my mentor is. Yes. Yeah. When I was a kid, my one of my favorite movies was Animal House. Oh, yeah. So John Landis has become like my big brother in the business. Really? So, yeah. So he, he's like, you know, my guy. I need advice. I call John, you know, that type of thing. He's... Someone who uh, at one point TNT uh, paid me to write the pilot and the Bible of what was supposed to be M. M. Night Shyamalan's Tales from the Crypt. That was not, it didn't move forward. 
Right, but, but I was still, like, that's, that's a hell of yeah, a gig I, right there. I was the guy that wrote the pilot in the Bible. And, and this is how the business works. I got paid $52,000 for something that was never made. Wow. And, and that's, but, and I look at that, it's like, yeah, okay, good money, blah, 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 blah. But damn, if it was made, you know, mm -hmm. I was executive producer with Shyamalan and this and that and the other, but it's just how the business works. I sell yeah. a bunch of material and you, mm -hmm. you hope that one or two of these things are made. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, so it's very much like a, it's very much like a throw it at the wall, see what sticks kind of, kind of business. It really is. It really, and I brought up John for a reason because John and I were, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we were writing mm -hmm. uh, Ghoulishly Yours, William M. Gaines, which was a biopic on right. Bill Gaines who created Tales from the Crypt and EC Comics and all that. Oh, man. Yeah, John was going to direct it. Yeah. I, I wrote it and all this type of thing. But uh, again, like a lot of other content, it mm -hmm. didn't go for whatever reason. So as a producer on the producer side, you've right. got to keep the stuff just going, which explains in part the, you know, ridiculous amount of hours in a week you work. Yeah. But it's that all sounds, good because this, this is the life I created. Yeah. That sounds a lot like when um, back in 99, 2000 or so, like around the time when Bruce Campbell released his book, If Chins Could Kill, I was right. there for a, uh, for a signing in New York City during the time that I was living there. And I talked to him about how, you know, like some of my friends and I, we, we had, you know, kind of written and performed our own sketches and, you know, like we didn't really know what we were doing with it, but at the same time we were having fun with it. And uh, we were just thinking like any sort of advice you would have. And I'll never forget this. And I have it on the book still, not only did he sign it, but he said, George, become a producer. So yeah. 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 And yeah, again, yeah, you know, like, again, here I go name dropping, you know, but <laughs> No, but you know what? I mean, look, it's it's interesting. There there are two um, sayings, I guess, mm -hmm. that I respond to. One is, you have the same twenty four hours in a day as anybody who has ever succeeded. Yeah, you have the same twenty four hours. And then the other was uh, Steve Martin, who said, "Be so good at something you can't be ignored." Mm. So a producer is on this quest to create that material that can't be ignored. Like right. when you watch Robin Williams. For yeah. the first time on, on Happy Days, when he played Mark for the first time, you couldn't mm -hmm. ignore this guy. No, I mean, no, he, he commanded the screen. Was, yeah, totally. When you listen to Eminem for the first time, I yes. mean, this guy had something going. Oh my God! I mean, you couldn't ignore him. Mm -hmm. And if you go through history and you really look at some of these people, they were so good at what they did, they couldn't be ignored. Right. And that's that's a producer's job. You got to present material to the world that's so good it can't be. It sounds like uh, with wrestling, like there's always that one promo or that one match or something like that, that basically just says, okay, this person's made, they are all of a sudden, you know, being shot up to the moon because George, of George, George, you do know my wrestling connection. That was not a comment that just came out of thin air, was it? Uh, no, it just, it honestly did. You know, like I, really? I was not, no, I'm not, you know, like I'm not familiar with your wrestling connection or else we would have become even more friends. So, okay. So here we go. Oh boy. So, all right. I'm getting comfortable here. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I was a special education teacher back in the 80s. Right. I read every last pro wrestling newsstand magazine mm -hmm. for years. I wrote for Wrestling's Main Event and Wrestling All-Stars. I wrote for all of George Napolitano stuff. I just spoke to Bill Apter a couple of days ago. No kidding. Oh, yeah. David, wow. Schultz, David Schultz, Dr. D was my Dr. D, yeah, yeah. He was one of my closest friends when I was living in New York. The Haiti Kid, if you remember WrestleMania three, I, I remember the Haiti Kid. I saw him live in Poughkeepsie at the Mid Hudson Civic Center. Yeah, Kessler was one of my closest friends. We haven't spoken in, in several years. And the interesting thing about him is, I thought he died, and I found out, <laughs> I found out four months ago, the son of a bitch is still alive. <laughs> so if you, George, can find out where the hell I can find this guy, I in the worst way I want to speak up. But, uh, yeah, no, and I was one of the speakers at Shad Gaspard's funeral a couple of weeks ago. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. No, I, I, I go way – do you, do you buy the Wrestling Observer? Do you subscribe? I don't. I, it's it's something, you know, like something I've had my eye on for, a, for a, a little while, mainly during the time that I was writing for 411 Mania. But since, I, since I've kind of, like, stepped away from, from that and just kind of been focusing on my own stuff, I haven't been – as keen into the wrestling world as of the as of today um, my, my, i started watching when i was six yeah 
you know, it was superstar Billy Graham and Bruno San Martino and everybody back then. Do you remember the first match you saw? The first match I saw was actually superstar Billy Graham arm wrestling George Scrap Iron Gandaski in the AWA. Wow. Uh, and then Ivan Koloff, the Russian bear, jumped off the top rope. Mm-hmm. and uh, attacked George Kadaski, and then I think uh, the Crusher ran in or something. So that was the yeah. first time I, I watched it. The first full match I ever saw, I think, was the Dusty Rhodes Superstar Graham bull rope match mm-hmm. at Madison Square Garden. I used to go to Madison Square Garden like every month because we had free tickets. Yeah, Dude, I, 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 I try watching Raw today, and mm-hmm. I find it so tough to watch. But I watch AEW on Wednesdays. I still, after all these years, I'm watching this stuff. I, um, yeah, I mean, I, this has been a part of my life forever, for like, since I was, you know, six. Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you. I, I, I still remember sitting on, on uh, my grandmother's bed over at, uh, when we were visiting my grandparents for the weekend, and I just turned on the TV, turned on, I think it was WPIX 11, and what do I, what winds up uh, coming up there, but a uh, wrestling match. I don't remember who he was facing, but I remember it was adorable Adrian Adonis with, uh, with some little, with some little guy with a megaphone, you know, as his manager, mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. And I met Jimmy Hart, you know, like uh, years back, I want to say like about, say like about 15 years ago or so. And he was doing, uh, he was doing a little, um, you know, guest appearance over at a dealership with, um, with the female gorgeous George, the one from WCW. And exactly. Yeah. And um, I remember just like, uh, you know, getting the picture with them and everything. And gorgeous George was, you know, very nice and everything. It seemed like she was ready for, you know, just ready for this fan and everything to just kind of drool all over and everything. I was like, yeah, that's nice. Let me talk to Jimmy. And Like Jimmy had like, about like 20 minutes worth of stories. The guy was a, a gem of a human being. And I still kick myself to this day for not saying, by the way, you were involved in the first wrestling match I ever saw. You know, there you go. Could have just said I, that. You know? <laughs> I, I'm going to correct you on one thing, though. Yeah. It was WOR Channel 9, and it came on at midnight. There it is. There it is. Yes. Yes. WR9. Yes. You know. Yep. But if you're talking about the 80s mm-hmm. with Adonis, yeah. at that point, they already had NBC's main event. Right. That was on, you know, 1130 and Saturday nights. I'm, I'm anal about this shit. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I totally anyway. get it. Yeah. yeah and no, yeah. it's been a part of my life for, for far too long, man. Yeah. Like, same here. Same here. Like, I mean, it was um just like my you know my first viewing of the undertaker in 1990 just where you know uh hulk hogan runs in with a chair smacks him on the back and he just looks at him as if to say please (laughs) that was that was just like okay this guy's gonna be my favorite wrestler and still you know still is to this day and got to meet him very briefly and everything but uh but it was it was still just like a very cool moment and um Somebody that I, you know, not only do I really appreciate, you know, for everything that he did, but he also was a main inspiration for my book, which became From Parts Unknown. So, like, that's definitely oh, something. Oh, that's interesting, because you know what, George? Yeah. I think I have your book. You're kidding. Which, no. Now, I, you know, like, no, now the fun part is, the fun part is which edition, because I did a first edition back in 2002 for iUniverse, and... Um, I got the rights back in 2011, read through it, realized I didn't like it anymore, but I knew there was something there. And so I spent years blowing this thing up into a five-part serial, which is now a complete book, which is out there right now. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm online right now. I just Googled it. I have, I have, uh, yeah, I think I know I have volume one. Uh huh. Very interesting. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. It's been oh. a while. Now, now I got to look at it again. Yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the Undertaker. Did you watch Last Ride on the WWE Network? I did. I did. Yeah, and I, I, I got, I got very, you know, very emotional. Like level of like, you know, watching Optimus Prime die. You know, like in Transformers the movie, <laughs> sort of level. When yeah. he, when he basically just said that, you know, it's time for the, you know, for the cowboy to to ride off for good. And it was just like. 
it was it was definitely like holy crap i got to see the undertaker's final match and it's something that um he's definitely someone who you feel like if he is truly set on saying he's done then you got to believe that he's done especially after yeah. all that all that he had been through and you really can't go out on a better match for the greatest character ever in the business to have basically like the greatest gimmick match that I've, one of the greatest that I've ever seen. Like that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's all about, regardless of what business someone's in, it's all mm -hmm. about leaving a legacy. Yeah. And you know, his legacy is, you know, unmatched mm -hmm. in a sense. And it, it doesn't matter again, what business you're in. If you leave a legacy and the match you're referring to is the AJ Styles match. Right. The and, Boneyard match. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it was good to see him go out that way if he's out. Yeah, yeah. Because he was so unhappy mm -hmm. with having subpar matches against Goldberg and so on. Yeah, and, Roman Reigns. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the way to uh, make it work. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of legacy, so with all of the writing that you you were doing and the the producer work that you've that you've gone into, what is it about? helping others along the way. What is it about that that really, because I believe like that's a huge, huge element of your legacy. Somebody who yeah. has, who makes a point to go back and give these, you know, great tips to always have time for people that are genuinely in need of a question being answered. What is it about that that makes you say like, you know, is it just about, you know, there are so many other people that helped you that you want to, you know, kind of return the favor, pay it forward? Let, let, let me tell you what I learned a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I used to run these networking groups. Yeah. I ran them at Paramount Studios. I ran them at Warner Brothers. I ran them at Sunset Gower Studios to sort of level the playing field between filmmakers and money. Mm -hmm. Every filmmaker needs money to make their movies. Right. And uh, from, from that whole process and writing my book and, you know, I was born and raised in the projects of Sheepshead Bay mm -hmm. for the first seven years of my life. Right. And, you know, did some moving back and forth and then did the full circle thing from, you know, New York to LA and back. And um, I learned along the way, being today, I can get almost anybody on the phone. Mm -hmm. Whereas all those years ago, I couldn't get anybody on the phone. Right. That when I gave, which is what I learned in my networking days, mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, people, some people say karma, but yeah. I got a lot in return. Mm hmm. Too many people will go into this business and push and push and push and want and want and take and take and take. And it's mm -hmm. always about them. So what yeah. happened to me happened organically. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from a gentleman by the name of Eric Shaw, who I ran these networking groups with. Right. The long and the short of it is I started giving. I started, people asked me to read scripts. I read scripts. Did I have time to read all these scripts? No, I didn't. Did I often overwhelm myself at the expense of other things. Yeah, I, I certainly did, but mm -hmm. I did it. And then people started wanting to do business with me. Then when mm -hmm. people needed a writer, they called me. Then wow. when people knew somebody who wanted to hire a writer, they called me and so on and so on, all because I did for them. Yeah. So it wasn't so much about giving back, although I firmly believe in giving back. Mm -hmm. It was about, let me just give with yeah. no agenda. And because I had no agenda, I didn't set out to say, hopefully I'll get back. It's just mm -hmm. the way it happened. And yeah. that's sort of been what I've carried through. So I go and speak all around the country. You know, I, they, I'm, I don't know in terms of when it's going to resume, you know, with the pandemic and all. Right. But, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of the Nashville Film Com or, you know, just last month, I was supposed to be in Florida speaking at the Fort Lauderdale Festival. Where they fly me to New York. They fly me. I mean, I've been everywhere. Yeah. And the thing is, I speak. Mm -hmm. I speak to filmmakers and I speak to And also giving them the no bullshit realities of the business. Yeah. And it's not, there's a lot that goes on that they don't teach in film school. Mm -hmm. And you need to be aware. Yeah. And uh, really, it's just a matter of, again, I love going out there. I do have a teaching gene in me, being that I did it for 10 years when I taught special ed. Right. So that gene is in me, and I like getting up in front of the classroom and 
so on or in front of an auditorium or in front of on a stage or whatever it is mm -hmm. and just uh sharing whatever i've learned my experience with mm -hmm. others and i do the same thing writing blogs and writing for screencraft screencraft the uh website yep. they you know hired me to write a bunch of blogs for them mm -hmm. i do a lot of blogs you know on my own and you know just to share information for whoever's awesome that's awesome and um so would that be like the the real kind of advice that you would have for any up-and-coming writers is basically just kind of like look back help people along the way as you go oh a hundred percent i mean let me let me ask you a question sure have you ever written a script yes yeah okay i have yeah if you saw steven spielberg in an elevator tomorrow and you have a script and you actually wrote it for Spielberg, what would mm -hmm. you ask him? Or what would you say to him? Or what would you do in that time it takes to get from floor one to floor two in the elevator? I honestly, I mean, like, just, just thinking about that actually has <laughs> my palms a little sweaty because I know, you know, like, when it comes to those moments, it would just be like, it's like, it's, I always feel so self-conscious about, approaching someone of not only not only of that caliber but just about anything um you know just any sort of moment where i can you know say or try to do something that would benefit me like i always feel like i'm imposing on their time if there is a if there is ever a moment like that even just say like you know i'm a big fan just want to shake your hand you know anything like that no i totally i totally understand i asked for a reason look when i came out here i was the same Mm -hmm. And then after a few years, you realize everybody puts their underwear and socks on the same, you know, the same way. Right. So, you know, when you get to know a lot of these people behind the scenes, outside of the image, in their houses and so forth and so on. Yep. They're, you know, you get the same insecurities, the same concerns, and, you know, just maybe a little bit more money. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, you know, if I saw Steven Spielberg, and I don't know Spielberg, but I've had several meetings over at Amber. Right. And if I saw Spielberg in an elevator tomorrow, what would I do? And if I had a script for him, maybe I'd tell him a Jewish joke. I would, in other <laughs> words, I would take him. I'm Jewish, by the way. So in terms right, of right. Him, yeah. It, it's all about taking somebody out of their skin and yeah. trying to crack it. Because here's what happens. Like when I go out to lunch with a celebrity, mm -hmm. and I hate that term celebrity because they're just friends. Yeah. But more often than not, they want to sit with their back to the door. Mm. And they want to sit in the back. I get yeah. that all the time. Makes sense. And, you know, because they don't want to be recognized. I don't want to be asked for autographs and this and that and the other. And that's, that's their thing. That's, that's fine. Right. And the thing is that the way I got these contacts mm -hmm. was that I never asked for anything. Yeah. I started a conversation with people. Mm -hmm. Or I said something so totally off the wall where, you know, they responded to it. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So I was working on a reality show with Floyd Mayweather's uncle. Oh, wow. Jeff. Yeah. Okay. And it was called the Mayweather's Blood and Glory. And this mm -hmm. is before, uh, this is actually right after uh, Floyd got out of jail. Mm -hmm. He, I wanted to do something. He was in jail for uh, domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do a real deal follow him through his rehab and this and that and the other and let the audience decide if it was real or not or whatever but i wanted him to he really at one point was trying to get his life temper whatever in order he spent right. time and uh, i wanted to document it and at the same time i wanted to document him trying to continue his career which mm -hmm. is what mike tyson did when he got right out. Yeah. And also do the same work, you know, with the family and everybody surrounding him and so on. So we, we were working on this. And I met Floyd for the first time through his uncle at Floyd's gym in mm -hmm. Vegas. And he came in, 50 Cent set it up with Jeff. Right. And, you know, that's one of those Jack Nicholson told me never to name drop things. <laughs> they were talking at the time. They were best friends at the time, Curtis yeah. and Floyd. And uh, the thing is that uh, I sat down with Floyd. We went on the bleat on the bench in the locker room. And I look at him. He's like, how are you, man? I go, I'm good, but I just want to tell you I'm real fucking pissed off that you're right now. I just have to tell mm. you. Because I knew yeah. that would jump, get him out of his skin. Mm -hmm. And I took a risk. And his uncle looks at Floyd and goes, see, I told you. He's like that. He's like that. 
And <laughs> Floyd goes, why? What's your deal? And I go, because I'm sitting about three feet away from the most talented fighter in the world and you don't have a single endorsement. Mm. Because he just got out of jail. Yeah. And he, before you went in jail, you didn't have a single endorsement because you were doing what you were doing on the outside. Bah, da, 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 da. He thought I had grapefruits. He thought I had balls inside of Fort Knox. Yeah. The thing is, it's a way that I got his attention. And then Floyd and I, for the next year, with Jeff and, and so on, we're trying to get, you know, negotiate specifics on the show. Right. Floyd ultimately did not take the deal. He made the right decision, her, his manager, right. that netted him about $600 million from fighting five more fights on Showtime. Wow. Among them wow. the Pacquiao fight, which was a lousy fight, but he made like $100 million from one fight or whatever it was. Yeah. So the thing is, he made, his, he made the deal that was the right deal to make in the end. But mm -hmm. the point is, always say something unexpected. And that's endearing to a lot of people because they're told yes almost all the time. Right. People kiss ass almost all the time. They look at them on the street and whisper, isn't that, isn't that, isn't that who I think it is? Is that another? And these people that you're with know that. Mm -hmm. And it gets annoying to them because yeah. they're not gods. What goes on in front of the cameras with the image and the makeup people and all this type of thing is one thing. When they're out in public and there are people wanting autographs and they have to act a certain way, you know, for a lot of them, it becomes stressful. But the point of the, again, this whole thing, I'm getting, I'm getting away from it. Right. Say something unexpected. This is how you start to develop a relationship and then just do for people. Because yeah. look, Spielberg isn't going to give a shit that you're in an elevator. He isn't going to give a shit that I'm in an elevator. So right. I may as well throw like the worst freaking Jewish joke around just in the <laughs> off chance. They'll respond to it and smirk. Right. And if he smirks, then I'll jump on. Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's such a great way to, to, to look at it. And it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, once again, you know, like a, a quick little name drop, but back in 97 or so, like during my senior year in college, my dorm room was, uh, was the 92nd Street Y. And so there was always, you know, different, you know, different, uh, different filmmakers, authors, whatever, coming in to do Q&As and have their chat and everything, you know, for their, for their series, for their uh, series of shows. And one of my friends, you know, like uh, stopped me just as I was walking into the dorm from school and said, Oliver Stone is here. And he's about to like set up a signing. Now I had the screenplay books for both JFK and Nixon upstairs in my room. Unfortunately, I had loaned out the JFK one to a friend. And so I didn't have access to that, but I did have my Nixon one. So I grabbed that, brought it, you know, went downstairs and got on the line because there was a, a good sized line of people that were there for, for get their stuff signed. And I had a question all set up for, for Oliver to ask him about Nixon, about the, um, about the, actually about the soundtrack, because I loved that score so much and still do. But um, when I'm, while he's signing the book, there's somebody over to the side who's basically just, you know, saying like, oh my God, Mr. Stone, I really love your work, JFK, Nixon. And just like, just starts spitting out the guy's filmography. And I didn't have my moment to actually ask him any sort of question, but he was nice enough to, you know, to hand me the book and everything with a smile and, and a nod, basically just saying like, you know, sorry about this guy. But, uh, but yeah, that was definitely a moment where I was all set to ask something, but somebody else just happened to uh, be gushing along the way. Now, 2020 hindsight, I should have just gone ahead and just asked him the question, but, you know, I also didn't want to interrupt anyone but that's just me. Well, you know, look, people have to learn to respect other people. People yeah. have to learn. I mean, celebrities have to learn to respect you if you want to get into their space, because there's a lot of, you know, celebrities think that they, they're going to be used for something. There's a guard up, right? There's, you know, what am I going to be asked for next? You know, mm -hmm. people tell me they're asked for money all the time and stuff yeah. like this. Incidentally, I saw Anne Rice for the second time the day after I met her the first time at Walden Books in Greenwich Village at the 92nd Street Y. Oh, wow. So the 92nd Street Y <laughs> was great. But yeah, uh, yeah. so look, you know, the whole thing is right now, in terms of advice, you know, we're still in the pandemic and, you know, we're having our numbers go up and maybe 
will shut down again, who knows. But for filmmakers out there, anybody listening to this, authors, whoever, take advantage of Zoom. Yeah. Take advantage of being in quarantine. Yeah. Call people, set up meetings. Also, for any screenwriters out there, take advantage of my union, the Writers Guild, feuding with the agents organization. Uh, a lot of agencies right now are looking at new writers because wow. WME, CAA, ICM, UTA cannot work with the old writers at this point. Right. So there are a lot of opportunities right now for writers, artists, creative people to really get out there without getting out. Mm -hmm. You know, make cold calls, do what you have to do and uh, attend virtual uh, film festivals or virtual filmmaking events and so forth. Do yeah. it. Do it all. You have absolutely nothing to lose. And um, if you can't do it live, watch it recorded. Go on YouTube, yeah. watch movies, learn, work on your craft. There's a lot you could be doing right now. Absolutely. So what, when you say that, uh, that all these different, uh, these different agencies are looking for, are looking for screen for projects that are not involved, you know, with people that are not involved in the, you know, in the WGA, but they eventually want to get in there. Would this be seen as something like, like their scabs and then, you know, just be. That's a real, upon? real, real, real good question. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, now you ask another writer's guild writer, this question, they may disagree. Yeah. In my opinion, they wouldn't be scabs. They would be opportunists. Mm-hmm. The uh, Association of Talent Agents, ATA, is feuding with the Writers Guild over issues such as packaging, which becomes very political and involved, and we don't have time to go through it now. Right. But that has led to the bigger agencies no longer working with Writers Guild writers. Now, in that case, the bigger agencies still need to sell scripts. Yeah. They still need to make money. Mm -hmm. Now, I may think that at least one of them are just awful, my old mm -hmm. agent. <laughs> I'll smile there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, I used to be represented by the biggest talent agency in the world, CAA. And really? I got a hell of a lot more for two years. I got a hell of a lot more done without, you know, an agency on my side than with an agency on my side. But that's hmm. because small fish, big pool. Right. The thing is that the agents still have to stay in business. Yeah. Her Personally, ask me if I care if they go out of business tomorrow. I really don't. But for as long as they're still legitimate companies, they need to make money. This yeah. is where a non-guild writer can submit their material. CAA came out just the other week and said they're, look, they're looking at non-guild writers now because they still ah. need to make money. They still need to sell scripts. Right. So, you know, on the one hand, I may say, you know, well, fuck them. <laughs> on the, I, I hope you can curse on your show, by the way. It's all right. It's all right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I let, I let our guests be our guests. So, okay. you know, that's, yeah. But, um, and, and if you have to edit, I'm stuck. No worries. But the, no. Uh, the thing is that it is time. I mean, it, they, it's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Take advantage of the opportunity. If I wasn't a guild member now, I would take advantage of the opportunity. Maybe that's a horrible thing to say, mm -hmm. but you know what? I said it, it's recorded. I stand by it. There you go. There you go. And where can, where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, everywhere. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Mm -hmm. If you're into, uh, you know, political back and forth, that's kind of my, my Facebook ID. But respectful uh, political. That's one, that's, that's a, that's a big, uh, that's a big plus right there. It's something that is, uh, that is a rarity these days. And uh, Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm not at, big on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I, yeah, LinkedIn. I post a lot of articles and blogs about filmmaking and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Goodreads, Medium. I've written over 600 some odd articles for Medium mm -hmm. over the past I don't know, year, year and a half. Yeah. And, uh, and this is another thing, by the way, for writers too. Mm -hmm. If you're a new writer and you're up and coming. Yes. And you're not necessarily writing scripts or screenplays at this point. Maybe you're not writing books, but you want to write some articles and get some practice going. I started writing for Medium only because I was writing a ton on Facebook. And Medium, I felt that I could write the same thing and get paid for it. Mm. So it's all based on a logarithm. You're going to make literally pennies in your first couple of months. Right. But not that I'm pimping Medium, but if you stay with it, you can make a very nice side income. So mm -hmm. it's just another one of these opportunities that are out there. 
case you're looking for financial opportunities. Awesome. Awesome. Just as you know, typical of, of Joel Eisenberg, he is always giving you different means of getting your, getting your foot in the door. And it's something that I have always appreciated about him. It's something I continue to appreciate about him to this day. And it's something that, uh, that a lot of people really not only need to take advantage of, but then look back at the people that are behind them and just think like, how can I help them? How can I get them up to this next level? That's what this show is all about. That's what our guests are all about. And it's something that, uh, that you know, Joel amplifies to, to no end. So I really hope uh, all of you have gotten as much of a thrill from this interview as I have. Um, I should really just call it a discussion. Um, and I really hope that you're all able to take at least something from this and not only make it a positive for yourself, but to turn around and make a positive for someone else. So for Joel Eisenberg, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. I'll see you next week. <laughs>